Brothers and sisters, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Good morning to you. It's a joy to be with you this morning, Community Bible Church. We had some good news earlier in the week. Uh, the prayers that we've had for many months now um, have been answered, and our dear friends at the food bank, they have found a new home, not too far away, about four blocks away, going to give them some more visibility, a larger uh, facility for them, better parking, and lighted parking for that matter. And so we just continue to rejoice in the way that the Lord is just gracing us and making space and availability for us to worship here at Community Bible Church. Well, we are coming to Ephesians chapter 2 today. And as we come to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 specifically, we come to one of the most beloved, one of the most treasured, one of the most prized and well-memorized passages of Scripture that's in, that's in all, of, all of the Bible that just people just treasure in their hearts. This text is a plain declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is such a clear explanation of salvation, and the focus of this text is on God's grace alone to save. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I've told you and reiterated that this, is, in my perspective, is man's view of salvation. And what is man's view of salvation? I've told you it's all grace all the time in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You see it first in the depth of grace, the, the depth that grace will go to rescue in verses 1 through 3. And then you see in the height of grace that God takes us from our spiritual death and raises us to spiritual life in verses 4 through 7. And then you see it in the brilliance of grace seen in verses 8 through 10 where grace shines for all that it's worth. And today we come to this passage, verses 8 through 10, and as we come to such a powerful, powerful text about spiritual salvation, I want to have your minds focused on salvation and on rescue this morning. I need you focused on salvation from danger. Messages of rescue and danger are all around you all the time throughout the course of your life, especially in the culture in which we live today. In the midst of all these mixed messages, I wonder... Do you care for your heart? Do you care for your mind by taking time to consider what is the greatest salvation message to attend to in your mind? What is our greatest rescue? What is our greatest danger? From our own sinful hearts to Satan to the course of this world, we are so quickly and easily led to believe messages of salvation that compete for title, the title of the greatest salvation. Humanity is regularly sold one salvation after another that offer no salvation at all. I want you to consider Costco with me. You've been there many times this week, all of you. I go to Costco so many blocks away and I'll stop in and food court and get a hot dog. It costs a buck fifty. You get a soda with it. They give you the soda. It comes with a cup and a straw. If you notice anything about that straw, that straw is paper. It's a paper straw and the words paper straw is an oxymoron. But if we are to rescue the planet, then we need to be done with plastic. And so salvation from climate change means paper straws. Do you believe that? President Joe Biden, in his inaugural speech earlier this week, issued a whole list of challenges and emergencies that require salvation. He wants a country united to fight what he believes are our greatest and biggest difficulties, including healthcare justice, economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice, equal justice, and gender justice. Are you united with Joe in pursuit of so great a salvation? President Biden has the full support of the head of the Roman Catholic system, Pope Francis, but not all in this Roman Catholic system agree with President Joe Biden's efforts. Archbishop Jose Gomez, the head of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, issued this statement this past week. He said, I am praying that God grant President Biden wisdom and courage to lead this great nation. But he continued, I must point out that our new president has pledged to pursue certain policies that would advance moral evils and threaten human life and dignity. Most seriously in the areas of abortion, contraception, marriage, and gender. Of deep concern, says Jose Gomez, is the liberty of the church and the freedom of believers to live according to their consciences. So what we see is that these three Roman Catholics are confused 
about salvation. Is there a surprise to you there? Three Roman Catholics confused about salvation. Let me cast your mind back to the confusion about salvation 500 years ago that existed in the Roman Catholic system. There was confusion in the Roman Catholic system 500 years ago, and the world was blessed by the greatest salvation clarity that God gave to a German monk named Martin Luther. Luther struggled with guilt, personal guilt. Guilt, shame, sin, and his own personal inability to cleanse his conscience in the order prescribed by the Roman Catholic system. No amount of personal resolve or good works offered salvation and a right standing before God for Luther. He knew he stood condemned in his own personal sin. He was pinned down by the greatest danger of all men, the wrath of God abiding on him for his own personal sin. He needed the greatest salvation, not from his German whiteness and not from his carbon footprint. He needed salvation from the great stain, the stain that is his own personal sin. Every day, Luther would go to his priest, Johann von Stoppitz, and confess all of his sins, only to return 20 minutes later to confess the sins that he was sinning while he was confessing. And this went on for hours each day until finally von Stoppitz told Luther, as you could possibly imagine, Stop it! Stop it! That's what he told him. Luther tried everything he could that a monk knew to do to release guilt for sin. But Luther never found relief. Luther said of himself, if ever a monk got to heaven by all the monkery that they do, I certainly would have got there. Then studying Paul's letter to the Romans, God opened Luther's eyes to see the greatest salvation. That God alone saves by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He said of God's salvation, I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been wide open to me. Faith for Luther had always meant choosing to agree with church rules. What a death trap that was. But Paul in Romans taught him that God was not pleased with human performance, but in faith alone. Faith, which is simply trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ to pay for your sin debt that you could never possibly pay. God's great salvation of Martin Luther kicked off what we understand to be the Protestant Reformation. We all stand on the shoulders of such an incredibly good work that God put into that man's heart all these 500 years ago. Perhaps the question for you today is, what kind of reformation do you need to see in your own worldview? What reformation do you want to see in our world for the greatest rescue of all humanity, of all Americans? What great salvation do you want to project to the people of the world who are in great need today? What is the greatest danger? What is the greatest salvation available to men today? Perhaps your thoughts on great salvation need a reformation. Perhaps your thoughts today are too worldly, even too man-centered. Paul has just the correction needed in the event you've lost sight of God's gift of salvation. The text is before us today. Paul celebrates the greatest salvation, salvation by grace alone. Paul is intent on explaining the brilliance of God's grace seen in his free gift of salvation, which gives great identity to us and glory to God. That's what you see in the text. We get identity, and God gets all the glory. You've got to love a text that opens up like that. How does Paul celebrate God's gift of salvation? He celebrates by explaining two fine qualities of God's gift of grace. He highlights, Paul does, two brilliant features of God's gift of salvation. Paul is here even found celebrating grace that saves by explaining two marks of brilliance in God's gift of salvation that crush pride and create purpose. This is what you need today. You need to have your pride crushed, and you need to have purpose created inside of you. That's what God's going to do through Paul in this text. What two marks of brilliance embellish God's gift of grace and salvation? What two marks of brilliance embroider and adorn this gift of grace, salvation? Number one, the first mark of brilliance is the exclusivity of the gift. 
And the second mark of brilliance is the expectation of good works. This will serve as an outline for us this morning as we work through the text. We'll look first at the exclusivity of the gift, and we'll look second at the expectation of good works. Now let's look for these now in the text as we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the whole passage. But especially we want to spend and focus our time on verses 8 through 10. So when we pass through 8 through 10, look for those two marks of brilliance that crush pride and create purpose. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Well, who better to learn salvation and good works from than the Apostle Paul? You'll remember that he was saved on the road to Damascus where he was headed to kill Christians, but Paul was graced by God with salvation in Acts chapter 9. From enemy, Paul becomes apostle, preacher, evangelist, and missionary with a singular focus on declaring the good news of Jesus Christ regardless of what Jewish and Roman authorities were attempting to do in stopping him. God had designed Paul for good kingdom works. Even this letter finds Paul <clears throat> writing from Roman imprisonment chained to a soldier. Still he is singularly fixed on sharing the power of God to save wicked, sin-filled people. The Ephesians, like all the rest of us, need to hear the story of the greatest salvation, the greatest rescue. And so here in chapter 2, Paul shares the salvation testimony of all of us. If you're saved here today, this is the path God took you through. If you need to be saved, this is the path that God is taking you through. It is this path. Verses 1 through 3, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verses 4 through 7, but God made you alive together with Christ. In verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Every one of us is saved by grace. <clears throat> Where details of our salvation differ, the plan does not. It's the same plan. This is the salvation testimony of all of us, which is why, as a pastor, it's interesting to hear believers in Jesus Christ tell their testimonies. Have you listened to many testimonies? Do you hear them regularly? I do. I've heard these testimonies for many years now. And some people, they say, they use words like, I accepted Jesus. And they say, I came to Christ. But those words aren't words that match the story. They can sound even dismissive and unthankful of the gift of salvation that God so graciously gives. Especially when you consider the verbs in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, who is active in salvation in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and who is passive? Far better that we say, I was dead, and God saved me when fill in the blank. God drew me to himself when fill in the blank. Because God is our Savior, we need to tell our testimony with verbs that indicate that he did the work, gracing you with the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation is exclusively a work of God, which brings us to point number one in your notes, the first mark of brilliance in God's gift of salvation. Point number one, the exclusivity of the gift. The exclusivity of the gift. Perhaps you're guilty of using verbs that take credit for your salvation. It's okay, you can repent. Hopefully, after more study of this text, Paul will have you cured of your verbal testimony pride. You can let that go today. Before we go into the text, though, I want to offer you a picture of rescue and danger that illustrates the exclusivity of the text. I, I really want to show you the exclusivity. This is all God. If you walk away from here with nothing else, understand that your salvation is secured in what God did, not what you did. 
He's got a whole host of, of, of works that he wants us to do since we're saved as a, as a fruit of, of being saved. And we'll get to those, right? We'll get to those. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, three chapters worth of stuff that you need to do, okay? But today it's all about God. It's about his grace. And it's about what he did to rescue you. So I have this picture, this illustration for you. Two and a half years ago, you remember well, because this was an international story, in June of 2018, there were 12 teenage soccer players and their coach who went exploring in the caves in northern Thailand. Heavy rains came down that day that they went in there and flooded many parts of that cave. And the boys found themselves stuck inside two and a half miles from the mouth of this cave, from the cave's entrance. They were trapped. They were helpless. They were dead while they yet lived inside of this cave. After 10 days, rescuers finally reached them. The grace of the rescuers went down into the cave and reached them. The route was extremely treacherous. Several sections completely flooded, requiring divers to go in. So how do you get exhausted 12-year-olds through a cave full of muddy rainwater? The answer is ketamine. Do you know what ketamine is? Ketamine is a sedative, a sedative used to render the boys unconscious to prevent them from panicking during their extraction through murky, muddy, underwater obstacle course that takes three hours to complete. The three-hour journey was broken into six stages. The first stage was a 250-yard flooded tunnel dive operation. The rescuers couldn't risk having a panicked victim. These boys didn't know how to dive. And so the boys were given a full face mask filled with oxygen and knocked out with ketamine. After seven days it took, a total of 17, seven days specifically to rescue these boys, the team was extracted from the cave and resting in a nearby hospital, to which the world said, what a miraculous rescue. And indeed it was. And I ask you the question, what percentage of credit can you give to boys, those boys for saving themselves? Let me remind you, their consciousness was actually a liability from them, so it was taken from them. Exclusive credit for their rescue goes to the brave men who risked their lives to save them, who wanted something better for them, who graced them with a rescue. And I would point out to you that if you are not able to save yourself in this physical world, how much less are you able to save yourself in the spiritual world? And that's exactly Paul's point. Spiritual salvation is exclusive. It is exclusively a work of God. Will you read the text with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is exclusivity. This is absolute exclusivity. This is Paul's second use of this extremely familiar and important phrase. For by grace you have been saved. The first time you saw it in verse 5. It was a total interruption at that time. Total interruption to his train of thought. It was a clarification though to all the work that God was doing himself actively. But here in verse 8, it's a full explanation. It's an explanation of the exclusive work of God to save. For me, when I read verse 8, this is the primary use of this phrase. And when I look at verse 5, I look at verse 5 as the bonus use of this phrase. Paul really wants to explain exclusivity on God's terms about God's grace. So how do we know this is an explanation of, of grace and of salvation? Well, grammatically, you run and encounter the word for in the text. And the word for tells us that Paul is going to explain the events of verses 1 through 7. You were dead, but God, in mercy and love, made you alive. And what does Paul require us to know about God's gift of salvation? that God's gift of salvation is exclusive. It is positively exclusive, and it is negatively exclusive. And where do we see positive exclusivity in God's gift of salvation? Well, we see it in Paul's use of the terms that he picks here. Let's look at these words. First, let's go with grace. Let's look at his first word here, grace. Grace is Paul's summary word for all of God's saving activity. The mercy, the love, the making alive, raising, and seating together in Christ in the heavenly places. All of these actions are unmerited favor that God gives out of his own character, his nature. You can't earn them, and you don't seek them. Grace resides 100% with its owner until that owner chooses to pour it out lavishly on the objects of his affection. R. Kent Hughes is a commentator, and he rightly says, The fact is, 
as soon as there is a mixture of even the smallest percentage of works, grace is debased and perverted. Let me give you an illustration. The food bank across the way. Many of us have got to know several of the folks that work there. They operate on the grace of business owners to give them favor and supply them with unspoiled food. Trader Joe's and Starbucks are under zero obligation to give food to them. They give out of their grace. How awkward would it be for their relationship if the food bank were to go to Starbucks and Trader Joe's and say, we choose for you to grace us with your extra food. Far better to let grace remain unmerited favor and allow those companies to come and give that favor to you. Second, let's look at the word saved. Saved is a description of our state of being. There's a lot of state of being verbs in this text. What is happening with your personhood? God has the ability to change your state of being in far superior ways than ketamine can change your state of consciousness. Isn't that wonderful to know? Sometimes I'm a total grouch, and God sends comfort and joy to me, changing my state of being. And here we see God sends grace that saves and changes your state of being. He sends a glorious rescue, withholding his wrath due for your sinfulness. Very literally, the Greek sentence here reads, you are, have been saved. It is so adamant on expressing the state of your being, the certainty of the state of your salvation in Christ by God's grace. The the perfect tense and the passive voice of the participle saved is, is screaming at us. It's screaming at us, you were saved in the past and the effects of that salvation continue to this moment and will continue on into forever. And moreover, you didn't save yourself. This verb, this participle is passive. You were exclusively rescued by God. Let me just hold my thought right there and tell you this. The reason why salvation has to be so exclusive, the reason why is because Ephesians 4 five, and six. God saves you. He's got good works prepared for you to do. And if it's not all him that saves you, you'll back out. By the time we get to Ephesians chapter five, verse 22, wives will back out on submission. We get to 525 and husbands will back out on loving their wives. Do you know what's going to make you husbands love your wife? God saved you. Do you know what makes you, you wives be submissive to your husbands? God saved you. There's power in that. That's where the strength is at, to do the things that he's required. If it's your strength, you'll back out. You'll flake out. You'll walk off. It's God's strength that holds all this together. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, verse 15. Matthew 16, verse 15. Grace is all of God. Saved is all of God. And now we need to look at this word faith. Faith is the third point of of positive exclusivity in God's gift of salvation. So third, we see faith. Faith is simply belief. Believing is something you do every day. John MacArthur says, every person lives by faith. When we open a can of food or drink a glass of water, we trust that it is not contaminated. Life is a constant series of acts of faith. You know, some of you are sitting there and you've got your Bibles open and you're turning and your neighbor next to you has their coffee precariously placed on their knee. It's going to fall over and tip on your stuff. You have faith, (laughs) No one believes in Jesus Christ except that God gives them the ability. No one believes in Jesus Christ except that God gives them the ability. Matthew 16, verse 15. Jesus is spending time with his disciples. And he asks them this incredibly important question. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Oh, that question of being. He wants to know what, they, what their take is on the state of his being. Who do you say that I am? And of course, who answers The bold Simon Peter, he answers and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What an incredible answer. Exactly right. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which means son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter could not believe except that God gave him the faith that does believe. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The image that comes to my mind is that of an electrical panel, even the one in that closet, which I've had to meet a few times since being here. I overwhelm that electrical panel 
the circuit that's in my office, running two heaters, a computer, a printer, and obviously the hot water kettle that makes me tea. The breaker trips, I get no power. Daddy not happy. You gotta run over to the breaker and flip that thing back on. In a similar fashion, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, they overwhelm the electrical panel of their humanity when they sin, tripping the breaker labeled relationship with God. And God alone has access to that panel. He placed that panel on the inside, not on the outside. Ever seen a chatty Cathy doll? <laughs> Can you imagine if it was able to pull its own cord? <laughs> right? What, what's our salvation if it's, a, if it's a switch on the outside? I'm saved. I'm not saved. I'm saved. It'd be horrible. He puts a switch on the inside. He alone has access. Turn to Matthew 7. Now, I, I make that illustration, but there is the case that some of you believe that your electrical panel with the switch, the breaker that says relationship with God actually exists on the outside and that you have access to it and, and you flip the breaker regularly or you flipped it at one point in time and you reestablished relationship with God. Congratulations. And let me tell you this, that belief is entirely wrong. I want to prove it to you. Jesus gives the most dire warning about fake breaker faith. Can I call it that? Fake breaker faith, which is abundant in our world. So many people believe. How great is the apostasy going to be at the end of the age? Is it a great apostasy? Is it a little apostasy or is it a big one? The one that's coming at the, at the end of time when Christ returns. It's a big apostasy. There's a lot of people that do this. They have fake breaker faith. They think the electrical panel's on the outside. They hit the switch. Jesus will deal with those in that day, which is in his judgment. And if this is you, there's, there's an incredible warning here. And, and, I, and I read this with all sincerity to you. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Consider these words very carefully. Jesus says, at the end of the most powerful sermon that we have recorded of his in Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What an incredible warning. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. And as you do, I, I want you to consider the faith of the people that we just read about in, in Matthew 7. The people Jesus speaks about suffer from false, fake, phony faith. James Montgomery Boyce says that fake faith takes one of three forms. Fake faith sometimes comes in the way of a subjective gut feeling. You know, you had some really rough pizza last night, but today, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to choose Jesus. It's a gut feeling. It's a subjective faith. The other faith is wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. There's a lot of wishful thinking in our society today. Some people have wishful thinking about the strength of a vaccine or the, the power of a mask. And so sometimes they have faith that takes the form of wishful thinking about Jesus. I wish that Jesus will you know, he'll take me up to heaven like uh, the Bible talks about a little bit there. Or they have this other faith that is the self-confidence faith. I know what God owes me. I know what he wants to do for me because I'm a good person. And I'm going to go get this world and conquer it and I'll take Jesus right along with me. That's that self-confidence faith. These forms of faith are 100% unstable because they are built on the strength of men. Whereas biblical faith is perfectly stable because it is built entirely on the promises of God from the inception of faith to the perseverance of the faith. There is stability because the start and the middle and the forever aspects of the faith are built on the character of God. It's the faith of trusting a parachute to do what it was intended to do. It's the kind of faith that would cause you to grab an oxygen mask and wear it while you're unconscious underwater. We need a rescuer who comes to us with a plan and completes it on his terms. Now those, the saved are those who, just like the soccer players in the cave, are taken to a place of total helplessness 
that illustration with the soccer players and even the illustration that I gave you last week, does God take everybody to the place that J baby Jessica went? Does God take everybody to the place where the 12 boys went for rescue? No, that place of helplessness, that place of rescue, that's a grace of God to go to the desperate place, to go to the deep, dark cave. And when he takes you there, he takes, he takes us down to this place of total helplessness. We are without hope, completely without hope. We, we understand the, the full frailty and weakness of our form until the rescuer comes and shares a plan with us, a plan that has his strength, a plan that will end our panic, not through ketamine, and a plan that completes the rescue all in his own strength. Paul has a name for this rescue package. He calls it the gift of God. And you see it there in the text. There's a word in the verse 8 that I want to address. It's the word that. The word that refers to the whole exclusive salvation package that you see there in the text. The words grace and saved and faith. The word that is addressing those three pieces, all of them in totality. And what we see here is positive exclusivity positive exclusivity, a user's manual of sorts to inform the faith of those who are saved. We need to understand our faith. But as you can already well see, Paul is not finished explaining God's gift of grace without offering three warning labels, three warning labels. And next we see the discussion of the brilliance of negative exclusivity. Let's talk about negative exclusivity. Where would you see that in the text? We see it in these warning labels. There are three plain and direct rejections of human intervention and salvation that are made in the text by Paul. And it's as if Paul has seen and heard these problems before. I think Paul has come across phony faith. And he puts out a dire warning here. And he wants the believers in Christ to know unquestionably exactly where faith comes from and where it doesn't. He says... Salvation is not of you, in verse 8. He says, salvation is not of your works, in verse 9. And he says, salvation affords no room for you to boast, in verse 9. Could Paul possibly be more clear? Can you feel the shot at man's pride in this? Ouch, right? Whoa, it's a lot of negativity, Paul. Someone might ask him, Paul, brother, come on, man. Why do you have to be so harsh? But think about it. Is man's tendency to take credit or to give credit? We are made in God's image and likeness. As a result, we want glory just like he does. Who's worthy of glory, us or him? Oh, that's right, it's only him. But that doesn't stop us from wanting it. We would love to own just a small piece of the glory of the greatest salvation the world has ever known. Because if we have that, then we can sell that to other people as some kind of cheap grace. There's a whole bunch of churches in this world that do just that. This grace is not cheap. It's costly. Paul removes every last claim that we could possibly make to steal God's glory. I would take you to the words of Jeremiah 9, verse 23, where God speaks through the prophet and says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in those things, declares the Lord. Is this what your heart does? Do you boast with Paul in God's exclusivity in salvation? Does the exclusivity of salvation make you celebrate God's grace and God's total power. Do you marvel when you think on these thoughts? Or, or is your mind, even now, devising ways to ignore the exclusivity presented in this text by Paul? It's not just this text, it's the whole course of the Bible speaks to this truth. Friend, if this is you, I warn you, stop it! It goes back to the Martin Luther quote. You're supposed to, you're supposed to laugh there. Built in some laughs here. Stop it. There is no gain in believing anything less than that salvation is 100% of God and 100% of grace. It's all God, all the time, 0% man. It's not us. We must celebrate with Paul in the exclusivity of God's gift of salvation. Our celebration is 
to God's glory. And he loves that. Paul is celebrating, and we need to be celebrating as well, because once you realize that you are not your own and that God made you and that salvation is his recreating of you so that you could come to understand the expectations that he's placed on your behavior, which we'll get to in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. God planned from eternity past to receive praise and glory for saving sinners, and better yet, to receive praise and glory as sinners walk in the good works that he prepared from beforehand. This brings us to the second point in your notes today. The second mark of brilliance in God's gift of salvation is this, the expectation of good works. The expectation of good works is the second mark of brilliance. In our Amazon shopping culture where most products are seemingly made from China, from plastic by robots, it's a rare treat to come across true craftsmanship. And America has many craftsmen. You could go to New York and find Steinway Pianos. It was a company started in 1850 by a German immigrant named Henry Steinway who built his first piano in his kitchen 14 years earlier. He came to America to perfect his craft Steinway has become the gold standard for pianos for their handcrafted methods, which result in instruments of the highest quality, the highest caliber, that take one year to complete because of the exacting specifications achieved by their craftsmen. Imagine the expectations of performance that those craftsmen must have of that instrument that they made that took a whole year of their time. Even this pulpit, for me, even this pulpit is put together by a master craftsman. And you can imagine the joy for the brother who built this pulpit to see it doing its job, bringing glory to God each week, just as this pulpit was designed to do. And like a piano or a pulpit, I hope that you understand you have a creator as well. And just as there are performance standards for pianos and pulpits, there are higher expectations for the people of God who are graced with salvation. Let's read the text from Ephesians 2. 10 and consider how the master craftsman crafted us meticulously for walking specifically in good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in all for his glory. Boy, and if your heart was frustrated at the idea that God owns all of salvation, this has got to frustrate your heart all that much more because not only did God operate this work on you in the past and you weren't part of this, but he put this to you. Now, out in front of you in the future, He's going to tell you that he has good works that he already knows that you're going to walk in because he prepared them for you. Sovereignty. Let's take a look at it. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, what is, what is expectation here in the text? First, expectation is in the word workmanship. Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9? Expectation is found in this comment, workmanship. We are his workmanship. The Greek word here is poema, which means workmanship or creation. F.F. Bruce, commentator, says, we are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. And I would ask you the question, which master craftsman do you know that in creating the greatest work that he's made has zero expectations of its performance? That would be ridiculous, right? Every master craftsman has great expectations of the performance of their greatest work, and such is the case with God. And rightly so. As the elect and the redeemed and the adopted of God, he not only has the right to have expectations of your behavior, I dare say God has an obligation to have expectations of the behavior of his greatest work. And I can tell you with 100% certainty, God has expectations of your life if you are one who is here today who is saved. God has expectations of you. God made you custom, unique, special, handcrafted. Whether you are tall or whether you are short, whether you are red, black, brown or white, curly hair or straight hair, even beardless guys like me, he's made us all for a purpose. You're in John chapter 9, which tells us a story of Jesus healing and saving. We're in Jerusalem with him at the Feast of Tabernacles, and having taught in the temple, the Pharisees want Jesus dead in John 9. And when escaping their grasp, Jesus decides it's time for great salvation. little interlude here. I'm running away. Oh, let's perform a great salvation on that guy. I love this text. John chapter 9 is so fun. John 9 verse 1, read it with me. As Jesus passed by, 
he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you realize what Jesus just said there? Are you following the text? God made the man blind from birth for God's power to be displayed in him at this very moment. Are you good with that in your heart? Does that settle well with you? God created a man. He made him blind from birth. And he's blind all these years, 30, 40 years, who knows, with all the pain and all the suffering that comes from a life of being born blind with the expectation that God would get glory from the blind man at this specific moment of history. If you don't know how to say, wow, I can't help you. Wow. You know, it, it, just, it just makes me wonder. As I present to you the blind man in John 9, how many of you came here with challenges today? How many of you are overwhelmed and overrun by the course of this world and by the, the own, your own sinfulness of your own heart, the temptations that Satan has presented in your life? What deformities and deficiencies and frailties are you contending with? What failures and lackings are there abounding in your life? What rescue are you looking for? Do you understand that everything that you're going through is for a purpose? You know, if sin doesn't have an ultimate answer in salvation, if sin doesn't have an ultimate answer, then God is not God. Sin has an answer. You know, some people say that there are political parties that take every opportunity to use wicked situations for political gain. God uses every sin for the gain of his glory. There is not a sin that God won't get glory from, whether it's in his wrath, it's in his justice, it's in his love, mercy, or grace. We're looking at this man, this man born blind, and, and I just, I, I put this on you to say to you, consider yourself. Consider everything that God's taken you and ask yourself the question, if God did all of that to you, if he did all of that to you, whatever that was, the way that your mom and dad treated you, the way that your employer treated you, the way that your friends treated you, whatever that was, can God use all of that right now to bring someone to salvation, if not you? Jesus spits on the ground. He makes clay from the spittle and he rubs it in the man's eyes. He sends him off to wash it out of his eyes in the pool of Siloam. And what do you know? Verse 7. So when the man went away and washed, he came back and he was seeing. The story of this miracle keeps the Pharisees busy with the man all day. It's truly one of the funniest chapters in the Bible. Go home and read it. You'll enjoy it. It's really, it's really kicking the pants, John 9. But Jesus wasn't finished rescuing and saving this man born blind. He had given him physical sight, but there was greater grace and a greater salvation that he prepared for this man on this day. Look at verse 35, where Jesus asks the man a question. He finds him later. Jesus goes and finds this man later. And he asks him this simple question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the, blind, the once blind man answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What do you see here? You see salvation, grace that saves, and God's glory as expected from eternity past coming through this man in the form of worship to Jesus Christ at that moment. The blind man was God's workmanship when he was born blind. He was God's craftsmanship at the miraculous restoring of his physical sight. And he was God's masterpiece when he received spiritual sight and worshipped Jesus. What is truly blessed about the picture of God's workmanship in John 9 is that the man born blind responded first in truth, calling Jesus Lord. Second in faith, he believed. And third in worship, giving God all the glory for this greatest good work that God prepared beforehand that this once blind man walked in so that John the apostle could record it and all of us could read what he said. Lord, I believe. Worship, praise, glory, these are the greatest expectations. Turn in your Bibles back to Ephesians chapter 2. Should it be any different? Should it, should it be something less? God is a glory hog. I love that about God. He deserves all the glory. There's no one bigger than God. 
He says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So this should not surprise you at all. It's all about his glory. Does the potter have right over the clay to make the vessel for his own special and specific use? Does God have the right over his workmanship to have expectations of their behavior? God has been long-suffering, kind, and patient, slow to anger toward all mankind, and it is not a surprise at all that God turns rebels into obedient worshipers. Augustine said that we are non posse, non pecare, which means we're born this way, non posse, non pecare, not able not to sin. But in salvation and in rescue, God has made us posse, non pecare, able not to sin. We are the elect, the chosen of God, washed and cleansed from our evil ways, powered by his Holy Spirit, desiring to walk in the good works that he prepared, able not to sin, which opens up access to us to be able to bring glory to God. And you might ask, what good works bring glory to God? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, which we read earlier, he tells us about walking in the Spirit and producing the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This fruit looks a lot like the life of Jesus Christ itself, and it is. Now we are called to do just like him. We are created in Christ Jesus, the text says. That's the sphere in which our good works happen. They could never happen outside of him. God prepared from eternity past that he would turn our lives around, take us off the path of wickedness, evil, and rebellion, and bless us and himself by preparing good works that we should walk in that we actually do. That's the amazing thing. We actually do walk in these good works, just like you see in the life of Martin Luther. Ephesians 4.13 says that we are to be in pursuit of behavior that conforms to the measure of the stature of the fullness which belongs to Christ. This is our pursuit. It's our way of life. It's how we walk. Walking is just a metaphor for how you live. Walking is a great theme of Paul. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling into which you've been called. Chapter 4, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of your mind. Chapter 5, verse 1, walk in love. Verse 8, walk as children of light. Verse 15, you walk not as unwise, but walk as the wise. We find our greatest joy to walk in good works that God prepared beforehand all to his glory. James Montgomery Boyce says, the Christian religion, while it preaches pure grace, unadulterated grace with no meritorious contribution to our salvation whatsoever, at the same time requires of us the loftiest conceivable conduct, conduct of righteousness, conduct worthy of the master craftsman who recreated us. Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so we have a father who knew of our rebellion, who planned and delivered to us a rescue and who prepared good works for us to walk in as if we're walking with a shepherd in green pastures along still waters. These good works are not a burden to us, they're a delight. Are they a burden to you? They're a delight. They're a delight. And when we consider all that he has done, it should absolutely crush our pride how could we ever forget our old, wicked, and rebellious ways, whether we were trapped in drugs or alcohol, sex, money, power, all manner of evil? But God raised you to new life, and now you are a slave to righteousness, Romans 6:18. By God's grace in Christ, we now have, through his power and his strength, identity and purpose. He is a craftsman. Um, he's made a masterpiece in us, and as a result, God has expectations of our behavior. Do you know that? If you're saved, do you know that? Do you know he has expectations of your behavior? What are your thoughts on good works which God already designed for you to walk in? Do you live a life that brings God glory? How deep in the cave of your own sin did grace come to rescue you? Were you entirely helpless? Do you celebrate the matchless gift of salvation which God gives as a gift? Has the brilliance of God's gift of salvation crushed your pride? and created in you purpose? Do you have identity founded on God's salvation alone? I hope that you do. We've looked at brilliance, the brilliance of God's gift of salvation. We've seen two marks of brilliance in God's grace that provides salvation for us. 
These two marks of brilliance, the first, the exclusivity of the gift of salvation, exclusively, this is all God. Second, the expectation of good works for those who are saved. He's a master craftsman. He put those good works right out in front of you. This is so monergistic. It's so one-sided. How do we respond to such brilliance and such, gr- and such grace? This is how we respond, in love and obedience. We respond in love and obedience. We look at that list in Galatians 5.22, and we say, you know what? If this is the fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God lives inside of me, then this is what needs to come out of me. And we do that more and more and more, all to the glory of God. Second, we live humble lives of service. Jesus came to serve, to be a servant. And so we take his example, we take his model, and I would ask you, where do you serve? Where do you serve? Are you connected to, are you attached to a local body of believers in Christ? Do you serve them? Do they know that? Third, I would say, we teach and preach Christ to strengthen the saints, to strengthen our own hearts, and to watch God save others. We evangelize the lost. We want to see his church built. And so this truth is not something that we keep to ourselves. It has to go somewhere else. It's got to go to somebody else. Because they're as rich as we are. And we have no idea if their name's in the book of life. And God can drop salvation on them just like he dropped on us. There is no greater salvation. The world is groaning in violence and evil and chaos. The world and its system want to make you believe that salvation will come when we have climate justice, social justice, gender justice, healthcare justice, equal justice, just on and on and on. These thoughts are an absolute failure and distraction from the singular source of salvation that we discussed in the text today. There is only one salvation that men need. It is an exclusive salvation. It is in Christ, and it sounds just like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Be workmen that know and share the greatest message of salvation. Father in heaven, we love you. We love you. We love the salvation that you have supplied. All of our adoration and respect and awe are turned to you. All we, all we are left to do is marvel and be in total wonder. How did this gift come to me? Why did you place favor on me? As wretched as I was, You had every reason to crush me. Why did you repurpose to recreate and recondition and refurbish my life? I guess there's glory for you in this. There must be glory for you in this. That's what your word says. And we take your word as true, Father God. We take your word as true. Did you put good works out in front of us before time began? Well, if you saved us, you certainly did this other. Help us, Father to walk in the good works that you have prepared from beforehand to bring you glory. We want that for you. We want that in this fellowship. We want that in this community. We want that for our lives. We want that for this body of believers. Be honored and glorified in all that you see and all that you are making happen and all that you're doing in Community Bible Church. Thank you for this morning and this exclusive salvation that you've placed on us. Amen.